0: Hi there, Rolf here. Thanks for listening to this episode of my course podcast, Markets and Society. I've included a description and additional material where relevant in the episode notes. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, today we're talking about patriarchy. We're going to make some very contentious and polemical suggestions. Because we're going to make the argument that civilization is premised on the logic of patriarchy. I have a a topic that I've asked you to think about in the context of this particular discussion, which is how is patriarchy both a product of and helps to produce civilization? And so we're gonna broadly structure our, our discussion around that idea today. I think it's going to be pretty clear how patriarchy comes into play as a function of civilization, but the notion that what we think of as civilization, in other words, the whole set of historical processes that have brought us here today, to think that that is, that requires patriarchy as a necessary component perhaps might be a bit more provocative. So that's going to be the, the broad agenda that we'll lay out. I'm going to do it with reference to the reading from Gerda Lerner, but I have some additional material that I'd like to bring to your attention, particularly from the eminent American sociobiologist Sarah Hurdy, and she has done some interesting work that helps to complement, I think, some of Lerner's discussion particularly since Goethe Lerner herself is an, a, an American historian. So her credentials, for example, around questions of sociobiology are about the same as mine, namely none. Before we jump into the actual reading and start constructing an argument, let's ask if we still live inside of a patriarchy. Do you think we're still living inside of some kind of patriarchal system? Yeah. You do? Why? In what sense? In the- in the workplace? Okay, uh, salary difference? Uh, men are more, more favored. Men are more favored? Yeah. In the workplace? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is interesting. So a couple of, many years ago, actually, probably someone you've never heard of, but she was famous for a while, Sheryl Sandberg. Have you ever heard of that name? She's the number two at Facebook. And so she's like Mark Zuckerberg's right-hand woman. Um <laughs> And she wrote a book called Leaning In. You know, it was basically a, a kind of a guide or a how-to for female corporate success. And it got a lot of criticism. I myself have not read the book, so I cannot, uh, I cannot comment on the, any of the details. And I can't even say if the criticism is necessarily that accurate. But the critical comments that were directed towards that book was Sheryl Sandberg's underlying message seemed to be that women, in order to succeed in business, need to be more like men. That was essentially her... Her argument, so women face structural disadvantages in the workforce because, unlike men, they will typically have to make choices about their, their reproductive interests, right? their desires to have a family, or let's say family concerns, and since women remain the primary caregiver of most children, that falls on the, on the shoulders of women, versus the need to sort of commit to the workplace in order to then foster your career. So her argument was, in order for a woman to succeed, she needs to be more like a man. She has to lean into her inner male, whatever that might be. And the other thing that, ele- that, that falls from that is that it suggests that there's a model of leadership which is normatively male. Men lead. If women want to take up leadership positions, they have to be more like men, which suggests normative male visions of how our society is organized and structured remains a very key component of the way in which we, we see the world. I think lots of women, including women who are ambitious for themselves and have clear professional goals, would probably not be unsympathetic to Sheryl Sandberg's argument. Yes, indeed, there is a normative model of leadership and we need to aspire to, and it's not fair that women are excluded from this kind of thing. What's missing from it is the possibility that male models or standards or modes of leadership are not normative, they're simply male modes, and there's an alternative mode that's equally legitimate, which you might call a female mode of leadership, one that we've never really fostered because we've been living in a male-dominated society for the last 10,000 years, but maybe now is the time that we should consider fostering it. And what does it look like for a woman to rise into a position of authority or power in a professional context, not leaning into what men do, but instead leaning into what she as a woman can do? And that's, that sort of element seemed to escape Sheryl Sandberg's discussion. So the point about patriarchy is, or at least as we might think of it broadly, it's the degree to which female agency is circumscribed by a society in which male agency is at the same time elevated. So it's not just men controlling women. It's about the degree to which you as a woman can express your agency or have the freedom or liberty to express your agency inside of the society in which you you live. Self-evidently, any restriction that is placed on your reproductive identity that's coming from outside is a restriction on your agency. It's preventing you from taking free decisions about what you want to do. We can circumscribe them inside of moral equations, which often we do, but where those moral equations come from are also themselves the product of patriarchal systems going back 5,000 or 6,000 years ago. Broadly, when we think of patriarchy, what we're asking the question is, this is, a, is a question about where or how female agency is expressed in the context of the social order. If you prevent women from getting an education, that's restricting their agency. If you're funneling them away from certain careers into others, ladies get to study literature, men study engineering, that's a circumscription of agency. And if you're then structurally discriminating against the exercise of female agency or female cognition based on things like choosing to raise a family, which I think is very common in our society today, what we are essentially saying is that we have fabricated a workplace environment which prioritizes a male experience over a female experience, and then uses that prioritization in order to define a specific path to success. No company will successfully be able to promote systematically and structurally female empowerment inside of it if it can at the same time accommodate women's need to have children. And that's just a self-evident fact. How many companies genuinely commit to, as it were, restructuring the priorities that they incorporate inside of them? And the answer to that, I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but probably not, uh, probably not very many. And that's speaking about now, let alone what it would have looked like 50 or 80 or 100 years ago, when women couldn't have bank accounts, were not able to, in some places, travel on their own. In in 19th century England, women, if their husbands died, didn't actually, did not have the right to custody of their children. Custody of their children passed to their nearest male relative, because ladies were not considered sufficient to be able to raise their children on their own without some kind of male guidance. So... The last 50, 60 years has seen extraordinary gains, but we're still obviously stuck inside of deeply structural, patriarchal systems, and that's gonna take a long time to work their way out. There's an interesting fact that in the 1950s and 1960s, that is to say, at the birth of computing, that many of the first software engineers were women. Why were they women? What was it about the 1950s and 60s that propelled women to the forefront of what we would think of now as computer science? Do you know why? I might ask a related question. Why is it that in the 1980s, as computer science was emerging as a formal discipline in universities outside of math departments and things like that, that it became a degree that was overwhelmingly sought after by males? Why do you think that might be? And if you're thinking it's related to, for example, men's brains are just better designed to handle the tough problems of computer science, You're completely wrong, as demonstrated by the experience of those women, pioneering women in the 1950s and 1960s who were at the forefront of computer science solving some of the tough problems of early computing. Well, the reason that women took on those roles in the 1950s and 60s, do you know how early computers received information, punch cards, you take a piece of paper and you'd put holes in it, and you'd feed it into the machine, and the machine would read the holes, and that was basically how you, you designed the binary code that it needed in order to execute commands. So if you wanted to program a computer, what you needed to do was to take a piece of paper and punch holes in it, almost like typing. When we think of typing, who do we think of in the professional workplace in the 1950s and 60s? Who were the typists? Who were the secretaries? Women. So because the physical nature of the work was seen as, quote, woman's work, namely manipulating paper to put holes in it in the right place, many women were sort of tasked with this, what was seen as secretarial job, to prepare the, these cards to then feed into computers. And from there, it was a natural progression that uh, the people responsible for computer inputs that they would then move into early forms of computer programming. But by 1980s, that's ended, right? So when we see the first computer science, say the first generation of of native computer scientists, like the 1970s, 1980s, it's overwhelmingly male. It still is overwhelmingly male. Why do you think that would be? The reason, at least as I have read it, is that in the 1980s, late 1970s, early 1980s, as the personal computer was first coming into the marketplace as a consumer good, and people were trying to think about how to market this to... To, to average people, to consumers. One of the primary motivations for getting a computer was that it had games on it, things like that. And so they were marketed to young boys. The marketing around toys, as we know, is very, very, very gendered. Girls play with dolls, boys play with, whatever the fuck boys play with, soldiers and shit like this, right? But I mean, if, for example, if I took two boxes of toys and I didn't tell you the gender of the child to whom they belonged. Would you be able to identify with a fair degree of certainty if it was a box of toys for boys or versus for girls? Yeah. Absolutely, right? Because it's a gendered and gendering environment. What I mean by that is gendered in the sense that it reflects cultural differences as we've elaborated between the, the sexes, but gendering in the sense that it reinforces those, those tendencies. So a boy who wants to play with a doll feels bad, has what Judith Butler called gender trouble because it's transgressive of a gender norm, even though if you think about it in the abstract, there's no reason why you shouldn't play with whatever the fuck you want. So since computers were being marketed as a male toy, and therefore something that that boys did and not girls, it fell into this gendered and gendering dynamic. The gendered part being the marketing and the gendering showing up when you then look at enrollments into political science programs, girls didn't see computers as a girl thing because they had been essentially acculturated inside of this gendered and gendering environment from the 1970s and 80s. That is a great example of patriarchy. It's not just a matter of exercising control. It's also a question of how we order the world around us according to a certain perspective. And that perspective, if it's male-dominated, is going to lead to a certain codification or encoding of of gender constructs that would be very different for example, were women who are ordering the world right? If if it was a predominantly female gaze, we'd see a different kind of gender acculturation than the kind we see through a patriarchal through a patriarchal mode. And a good example of that, and we'll come back to it again in the course of our discussion that we've already seen in this class a couple of times, is the, the notion that there's somehow a differentiation or a, or an asymmetry of prestige available going all the way back into the Pleistocene, right? Going back, say, 100,000 years ago, where we think about man the hunter and woman the gatherer. Two core economic roles. And archeology, span like almost every academic discipline, male-dominated. What did male archeologists instinctively think when they saw male hunters and female gatherers? Which was the more prestigious of those two activities, hunting or gathering? Hunting, it goes without saying. Of course, hunting is a prestige activity. Why? The men are doing it, right? But it also somehow feels to us like it's a more prestige-driven activity. Of course, hunting, you're out there. You're, I don't know, you're, you've got a spear in your hand. You're connecting with the blood of another animal or something like this. You're bringing it down like that. Whereas gathering, I picked some nuts off a tree. You know, the, for the male archaeologist gaze, it was self-evident that hunting would have more prestige than gathering And so in a world where there is, due to biological sex difference, then gender assignations with respect to resource extraction, it seems reasonable enough to imagine that even in primitive societies you're going to have a differentiation in terms of how prestige is distributed inside of a society. But if we think about it, as we will, how legitimate is in fact that assumption and, if you, and as we'll explore, actually, the assumption makes a lot of sense when you're looking at it from the point of view of a male-constructed understanding of how the world works. But if you can somehow step outside of that or step to the side of that, you can actually then start to see these kinds of things in completely, in completely different ways. There's another little story that I wanted to tell in the sort of beginning of our discussion before we jump in more into our more formal remarks. You remember that last week we talked about Bruce Trigger's work on the Huron. Remember we talked about the exogenous market structures and the way in which the Huron emerged as a nation. And we noted that one of the big shifts in Huron society was as far as we can tell from the evidence, at least as far as Trigger can tell from the evidence and then told us, is that it seems to have shifted from a patrilocal patriliney system to a matrilocal matriliney system. And the argument that underpins that shift was that when the Huron uh, had the opportunity to develop basic forms of horticultural practice, that at that point, the emphasis of knowledge uh, acquisition and knowledge perpetuation moved from men to women, from hunting to, to horticulture. And so the logic of the society shifted and the institution of patrilocality was then moved to one of matrilocality. And we'll explore the importance of that idea of matriliney versus patriliney in some detail in a bit. But the interesting thing is, right, this then shifts the foundations of the society, and we saw that this gave rise to all kinds of additional institutions, and ultimately from that we see that Trigger makes the argument that something like a nation appears anchored by territorial stability, which we argued was created by exogenous market forces. Anyway, that's a quick reminder of what we did last week. In the context of, this, of his book, Trigger tells a really interesting story which was recounted by, I believe it's Samuel de Champlain, who was one of the early French explorers of what they called la Nouvelle France, New France, what we call today Canada, uh, or what Voltaire famously called Quelques Arpents de Neige. And Samuel de Champlain was invited into, he was going around and he was uh, making contact with indigenous peoples in the eastern part of Canada, and he uh, went to one of these Huron villages, and he recounts the story that he was probably in his 30s, shows up, and a young nubile Huron woman, and by nubile I mean not in the informal sense, but in the sense of a woman who was of reproductive age, comes up to him and essentially propositions him. Says, would you like to spend the night with me, kind of thing. Not exactly how she put it, but that was the intention. As the song goes, right, voulez-vous coucher avec moi? And he was appalled. What world is it Remember, Champlain, good, good Frenchman, good Catholic French guy from the 17th century. What world is it where a nubile young woman comes up to a, a male stranger and propositions him? The only female role where that is acceptable, what do we call a woman who is aggressive enough to proposition a male in our society? Certainly in French society of the 17th century, what do we call such a woman? You know the word. Say it out loud. Hooker. Thank you. I was, I was going for prostitute, but hooker will do prostitution, which transactionalizes sex. In that context, the female is her own economic agent, and in order then to support herself given that livelihood, it is acceptable as part of a kind of social construct to proposition. But it's transactional, right? So it's not like I just want to sleep with you. It's you have to pay me money because this is the service that I, that I provide. And that was not what this young Huron woman was doing. She was just here was this interesting, cool French guy who looked different, and she was like, oh, yeah, that'd be fun. So Champlain was appalled, said absolutely not. And what do you think his conclusion was from all this? Like, what, when, when this happened to him, how do you think he, he felt about Huron society? What was his takeaway? Isn't this great? The women are free to express their interests as they see fit, do you think that was his conclusion? As a good Catholic? No. Do you think he disapproved? Oh, yes, he did. His conclusion was, this is clear demonstration that the Hurons really need God. We need to Christianize these people because they have fallen into such depths of moral depravity and turpitude that this is the kind of thing that is happening. Young, nubile women literally going around, and apparently purely for the pleasure of it, asking men if they will join them for a night of sexual congress unacceptable absolutely unacceptable let's get in a boatload of missionaries as quickly as we can and get these people thinking the right the right way it's interesting because huron society was a matrilineal matrilocal society not many matrilineal matrilocal societies in any modern time but that was one of them and it's suggestive that if you're inside of a system of matriliney and matrilocality, that in fact, the agency that's afforded to the female body is going to be substantially different than one that emphasizes patriliny and patrilocality. And so what Champlain saw as the moral depravity that emerges when you don't Christianize in the right way, that is a possibility, but much more probable is that female agency can express itself outside of what Champlain understood to be the normative structures of society, but which we would call, analytically, the patriarchal structures of society. Because for Champlain, the expression of female agency, and especially female sexual agency, always needed to be circumscribed inside of patriarchal social structures, with the exception of prostitution, and that's only okay because it's transactionalizing female sexual agency. It's not actually an expression, as it were, of her own independent agency. It's a, it's a transactionalization based on a kind of underlying economic, economic logic. So I bring up that story because it shows you that when in the past, when people have confronted moments where the patriarchal reality in which they live has been perhaps pushed up against... Our only reaction has been typically to lean into the patriarchy, to not say, oh, this is a wonderful alternative to how I'm living my, leaving my life, but instead to say, we need to bring these people under the right belief system because look what's happening to them with the, belief system that they, with the belief system that they have. So what I'd like to do is just in two parts. The first part, I want to examine the question that Gerda Lerner lays out for us, which is the question of whether patriarchy should be seen as Historical. And what, we, what that means is we could argue that patriarchy is a, just a natural expression of sexual dimorphism in, in animals, right, as nature creates them or as they've been evolved out of nature. Or we could argue that it's historical, meaning there was a process that produced a system in, under which female agency was subordinated to and circumscribed by male agency. And Goethe Lerner's supposition is that that is a is not a natural phenomenon, but a historical phenomenon, meaning it started at a certain point. So we want to ask the question, is that true? And why did it start in the way that it did? And what was there before that? Can we imagine a world that doesn't operate according to a patriarchal logic and we will incidentally point out that the opposite of patriarchy is not matriarchy, but indeed the non-symmetrical distribution of power and prestige and authority inside of a social system. And then in the concluding part, we'll want to consider this question of patriarchy and civilization and look at the ways in which patriarchy is both necessary for, but also has helped structure civilization, enfolding within it women, uh, or let's say structuring women within a concept of civilization in which their ability to be fully fledged human beings uh, armed with the full capacity to make decisions for themselves has been pretty much wherever we find civilization, whether in the Far East, whether in the the Indian subcontinent, whether in Mesoamerica, or whether in Europe, or the Middle East, broadly, we find the same thing, that civilization, the pattern of civilization, reproduces a model of circumscribed female agency. Why would that be? What is the benefit of a system like that? Is it simply that men enjoy controlling women? Or is there something more structural, more utilitarian, that explains why that, is the, why that is the case. And at the end, we'll ask the question, what happens to a civilization, what happens to a society, when it takes 50% of its cognitive potential and essentially silences it for 10,000 years? What would we predict to be the outcome of a society that's only capable of using half of its brain? Okay, let's jump into our formal remarks today for, the, for this discussion of, of patriarchy and our examination of Learner's text. So we note that in the beginning, she asks the basic question, right, should we treat patriarchy as a historical artifact? She notes that if it's a historical artifact, it has a beginning, and we can investigate that beginning, where it comes from. To investigate where it comes from is also implicitly to ask the question, why? What problem is patriarchy trying to solve? Now, we have to consider the possibility that patriarchy exists as a natural desire of men simply to dominate women. So it's just a a reflection of nature that the way that natural selection is operated is that women have been placed under the natural domination of of men. But this does not seem to be the the case. Uh, There are certainly strong differences in terms of male and female behavior in the natural world, but this notion that a life led as a female of the species would be led essentially as subordinate to some kind of male system it does not seem to be an operative feature of nature. On the other hand, there is an element of nature, which does seem to inform the question, which is the degrees to which female sexuality is monopolized by some kind of male male structure, male behavioral structure. And this, I think, has been very important in terms of the formulation of how up until fairly recently, up until, say, second-wave feminism, we thought about patriarchy, namely, patriarchy exists as a reflection of A larger natural order in which there is a struggle amongst men for female sexuality and as a result of that struggle for male competition for female sexuality patriarchy is let's call it a kind of natural expression of what that struggle can look like it doesn't necessarily exclude other possible forms but it suggests that there is perhaps natural foundations to a system in which the female the female agent is subordinated inside of a male structure Darwin himself made this point in his work on natural selection, seeing a system in which men struggled with each other in order to secure reproductive privileges with females and thereby pass their own genetic line going forward. And he saw this as a critical element of natural selection. In this way, nature selects for only the best male genes, and the female uh, has a role in selecting for those best male genes as a result of this competition, and this way you optimize the genetic makeup of the, of the species. It eliminates the weak and promotes the, promotes the strong. And indeed, there are many parts of the natural world where that does indeed appear to be the case. There's very strong dimorphism between female and male physiological characteristics or phenotypical characteristics, as well as behavioral characteristics. So male-male competition, and then you have a female who selects based on the outcome of that competition. If you think about it, in a system like that, the agency of the female is actually very, very subdued because all that's happening is, like, at the level of action, it's men competing with each other, and once that competition has taken place, then, as it were, the selection has been made, and the female exceeds to, to this selection process. She says, okay, this is the man who has the most impressive display, and now the mating will follow according to that, to that logic. So that sort of Darwinian model of natural selection places a lot of onus on the male to compete with other males for access to to females, and then diminishes the capacity of females to act. Because the choice that they're making has been, as it were, pre-selected as a result of male-male competition. However, if we want to consider this question outside of a broad natural context, the larger world of animal reproduction, and think of it specifically in the context of how we ended up as human beings with this system called patriarchy, we need to investigate those kinds of natural behaviors along our own evolutionary lineage, which means we need to think about what this behavior might have looked like for earlier hominids. Uh, We don't know what that looked like because we don't have any earlier hominids to study. No Homo erectus, no Neanderthals around for us to look at. But we do have some evolutionary cousins and we can observe their behavior, namely those primates, chimpanzees, bonobos, others, to whom we are most closely related in in the evolutionary record. And it's interesting in the context of primate behavior that the Darwinian model of male-male competition and then coy females selecting the winner with whom to mate does not seem to apply. Instead, based on many primatological studies of primate reproduction or primate patterns of reproduction, and more importantly, not just reproduction, but primate patterns of sexual activity, that in many primate groups... The Darwinian idea of the coy or shy female who waits to select a mate based on some kind of male competition has been replaced or never existed in favor of a different type of behavior, which stresses instead patterns of female availability, what sometimes is called female promiscuity, namely, women who are engaging in multiple acts of sex. And I should note that we're going to acknowledge the existence of sex in this class. Multiple acts of sex, not even necessarily for the purposes of conception, but simply as an ethology that exists inside of that particular species. You may have gone to the zoo and you've seen those, those monkeys or whatever they are with the very uh, brightly colored behinds. You know what I'm talking about? The kind of jarring bright red bottoms that some of those monkeys have. I don't know if you've ever wondered what they're for. That's, a, that's essentially signaling sexual availability. And so in the context of primate behavior, what you find is actually a a modification of that idea of male competition, female coyness for the purposes of optimal partner selection to drive the process of natural selection going forward. Instead, what you find is indeed male-male competition, but also female choice. So female primates are often making choices themselves about with whom they choose to mate, when, how often, and so on. And so there's a much more, let's call it, chaotic level of sexual activity that takes place inside of primate groups. And Sarah Hurdy, whose work I I mentioned earlier, HRDY, she makes an interesting point, which is that actually, instead of the rather simplistic Darwinian model of male competition leading to female mate selection, instead, it's a more complex model in which males are competing, females are making much more active choices, And then there is a corresponding male coercive behavior. So in the context of female sexual agency, males locked into competition for reproduction with females find ways to try to coerce female behavior in order to optimize their own reproductive opportunities. So this creates a much more complex mode of behavior that we can observe today amongst primate groups. Insofar as we are descended from that group, our nearest evolutionary cousins are chimpanzees, Uh, members of the Pan genus, it is reasonable to imagine, or even might say to assume, that those kinds of behaviors carried forward into our own evolutionary lineage. So that early hominids, whether they be Australopithecines, or Homo erectus, or Homo habilis, or Homo heidelbergensis, or any of the other homos that have walked the earth over the last millions of years, five or six million years, that one of the characteristics of that was some inheritance of behavior from our primate ancestors. Namely, male competition, perhaps, for for sexual reproductive opportunities, but also an element of female sexual agency, women choosing with whom to mate, and why, and why they're choosing to mate. As a quick aside, for those of you who are interested, you may be aware of this already. If not, uh, it's a, a very interesting literature, which is, it still is very confusing to biologists why the female orgasm exists. What's the purpose of that? Why would nature have created this particular artifact? The male orgasm is very understandable, right? Because that's simply what produces the necessary ejaculate to lead to pregnancy. Why does nature care if women have a good time? How does that necessarily help natural selection? And one of the arguments that has been promoted in terms of this kind of female orgasmic experience is that it relates to the idea that sex, for primates, for example, and us as well as descended from from that, hominids, that it actually reflects sex for non-conception purposes, so that sex has a wider range of functions than simply reproduction, which is the case for almost all other species that we know of. Generally speaking, when animals mate in the wild, they're doing so for the purposes of procreation, and primates and hominids are the ones who seem to have a more eclectic desires when it comes to the purposes of having, of having sex. Additionally, we find in primate behavior primates, like human beings today, are capable and often willing to have sex on any given day during the female cycle. This is also very, very unusual. Most animals in the, in the natural world have a very specific time, the time of estrus when they're ovulating. That is the time that they signal that they're willing to mate. Typically, sexual congress is reserved for reproduction, signal through various kinds of behaviors that indicate when a female is ovulating and can, get, can, and can reproduce. Whereas for primates, and then subsequently hominids, including ourselves, that is not the case. So sexual activity is not restricted to a certain specific window, but it can instead be used more widely. So it becomes part of a larger tool set in the context of human social, uh, well, let's say hominid social uh, behavior. And this is important, I think, because... Lerner makes the important point that patriarchy does not consist of men dominating women in a sort of straightforward uh, up and down sense. It's not male assertion of authority over the female body. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. In fact, it's a lot more nuanced than that. The element of patriarchy that seems persistent uh, wherever we go is a monopoly or is an expression of monopoly rights over female sexual reproduction. And you can see the distinction even in early civilizations codified often in law, because the law as it applies to nubile women, meaning women who are capable of reproducing, is often distinct from the law as it applies both to young girls and postmenopausal women. So women outside of their reproductive phase are often seen in a civilizational context, in a legal setting, as distinct from Uh, Women, when they are in their reproductive phase. I'll give you an example of that. It's not a very pleasant example, but in the city of Augsburg in the 16th century, there were two penalties for rape. If you raped a very young girl or a very old woman, the penalty was considerably reduced than if you raped a woman who was of reproductive age. And clearly, the import of that law is it's saying that the value of a female body when she can reproduce is distinct from the value of a female body when she can't. And so it reflects that idea that Lerner points us to of patriarchy built around the idea of a monopolization of sexual reproduction, not the actual female body itself. The female body is, as it were, a second-order effect from the importance of sexual reproduction. And that's important because it, it draws our attention then to this notion that it's not simply about men's desire to control another person who's a woman. Instead, it's linking it to the idea of What patterns of reproduction are taking place in our society? What importance do they have? And how are we building out institutions to affect control over them? So it places the emphasis on this idea of of reproduction and paternity. So Lerner's argument that that patriarchy is a historical artifact, we then can go back into the evolutionary record and say, well, do we have evidence that in fact, because of these sort of behaviors that we see of our closest evolutionary relatives, in this case, primates, and from what we can then infer of earlier hominid behavior, that patriarchy is a necessary component to ensure optimal reproductive success for both primate species and hominid species. In other words, if we don't practice patriarchy, we as a species will be diminished and our capacity to self-perpetuate will be compromised. That would be the natural condition of patriarchy. Unless we are patriarchal, we are not reproductively successful. And that simply does not appear to be the case. There are plenty of examples of male coercion strategies to try and create additional reproductive opportunities, but the notion that we can only succeed as a species by having men monopolize female uh, sexual reproductive agency does not appear to be, is clearly not, I should say, uh, based on the natural record, a condition of how we optimize our reproductive success as a species. So this means it is not a feature of natural selection. Patriarchy is not a behavior that's being created through natural selection in order to allow humans, homo sapiens, the best possible opportunity to succeed in a natural environment. So if it's not a natural phenomenon, it means that it's being learned, right? It is a cultural behavior. Now at this point we might remind ourselves that typically when we're talking about these kinds of things that we refer to sex, meaning biological sex, the physical differences between men and women, so women can have children, men cannot. That's a function of biological sex difference, as opposed to gender. Gender difference is a cultural construct. So the difference between sex and gender refers to the physical versus the cultural attributes. So when we say that women are, uh, have children, that's a feature of our biological sex difference. If we say that men are the hunters, that's a gendered category, right? Or it could be a gendered category, meaning that it's a cultural a cultural construct. If we go one step further and say that hunting has more prestige than other activities because the men do it, that's a good example of a cultural creation or a cultural gendering of an activity, right? It's taking an activity and it's ascribing to it a certain kind of value based on the way in which it's practiced through a reading of gender, gender roles. What I want to do is to consider then what it would have looked like, what it might have looked like prior to the moment of civilization. We'll call that the Neolithic, So prior to the Neolithic, when we moved away from our hunter-gathering past, and we moved into a new economic footing, namely that of agriculture. Uh, Lerner starts her discussion with the advent of writing, the Sumerian cultures of about 5,000 years ago. But actually, agriculture, as we know, started well before then, so I suspect her remarks regarding early observable cultures, civilizations like Sumerian, Uh, would be applicable previous to that because the great dividing line, at least this will be my argument, is when we shifted into an agricultural footing and that changes the economic logic of society and therefore, as we'll see, requires new forms of cultural constructs that then map onto that new economic footing. But what did it look like before the Neolithic? Before we settled down as farmers, before we sedentarized and started to grow on our, our own crops, what would it have looked like for people living in bands of hunter-gatherers. And the short answer is, how would we know? No nice woman from, say, 60,000 years ago left a little memoir what it's like to be a homo sapiens female of the upper Paleolithic. So we don't know, we can only guess, we can only infer from what seems seems reasonable. Now, it seemed to many archeologists, very reasonable, that in those hunter-gatherer societies that they would be male-dominated. And the reason that seemed a reasonable enough assumption was, well, we live in a male-dominated world today, so presumably we've always lived in a male-dominated world. After all, there are biological differences between the sexes. Men are stronger, they tend to be taller, they tend to be faster, right? They have these kinds of certain physical advantages. So from those physical differences, which I have to say compared to some species are not particularly pronounced, but based on that sexual dimorphism, sure, let's say that power has always been concentrated in the hands of men. So let's assume following from that, that in the pre-Neolithic, that that would have been the case uh, as well. Now, it is very possible, in fact, let's go so far as to say, it is very probable that actually power structures were in the hands of men, of males, but that doesn't mean it's patriarchy. Patriarchy refers to the monopolization of female sexual agency specific to, to one male partner. So just because you might imagine a society where power is distributed somewhat asymmetrically across a biological sex divide doesn't at the same time imply that that power is working in such a way as actively to exclude the agency of women who are living inside of those those societies. And so while all considerations have to be basically inferential and very speculative, we can push back a little bit against this notion that somehow, even from our earliest emergence as a species, it was simply natural for men to take up positions of authority inside of these groups and to exercise that authority in such a way that led to the subjugation of female bodies inside of our societies. So let's consider, for example, as we mentioned before, this question of man the hunter, woman the gatherer. Let's ask, is there a good reason why men would hunt and women would gather? You can imagine if you're a woman, you're taking care of your kid, and remember our children born premature, so it takes them a long time for they acquire basic skills going out on the hunt while you're trying at the same time to hold on to a little kid is going to be very difficult. Not only that, you may recall that one of the features of the transition from a pre-Neolithic to a Neolithic mode of life is we see population expansion. You may further recall that that population expansion has widely been cited as a demonstration of the superiority of the Neolithic mode of social organization. But as we have observed and explored in this class, low population densities of pre-Neolithic peoples were not, or very likely, not simply the result of a life led in desperate subsistence, constantly fearing death, but instead as a result of human agency and human technologies which recognize the carrying capacity of any ecosystem and correspondingly develop population control measures so that their populations would not grow too high. You don't want to exhaust the available resources that you have by having too many people. How do we control for population? What's, our, what's nature's birth control, as it were, other than abstinence, which doesn't work very well? Longer lactation, because although not exclusively, generally speaking, lactation suppresses ovulation, so we find that it's a very common behavior for uh, hunter-gatherer mobile peoples to have long lactation periods. So it's not only that you have a little kid that you're carrying around, the mother is very likely to be weaning that small infant to well beyond when they're a small infant, perhaps to the age of two or three, or maybe even four, five. gets a little weird, um, <laughs> right? But the purpose of that is to essentially, it's a form of population control. So in a context like this, where women are spacing out the birth intervals by essentially uh, having a very extended weaning periods, it means that hunting is not a very female-friendly activity. Not only that, but you can imagine, even if a woman did want to go on the hunt and she's taking on her little three-year-old or something, and you're sitting there and you're stalking whatever beast that you want to bring down, what is that little three-year-old very likely to do? Those of you who've been on a plane where there have been three-year-olds, or those of you who have been stuck on a train with three-year-olds. Exactly, and how annoying is that noise? Super annoying, right, so exactly. So it's the, the incapacity for young children to control their behaviors means that it's not perhaps ideal for the hunt as well. It seems to make sense that based on biological sex difference and the role of women in weaning children, that there will then occur a gendering of activities, meaning that certain activities will culturally attach to males and other activities will attach to females. And so this is why we can say that men presumably were hunters and women were gatherers. And we say that outside of any kind of prestige paradigm. So we cannot say that one activity has more prestige than another, can simply note that based on those biological sex differences, those kinds of roles seem to be be reasonable and consistent with the behaviors that we find in existing groups that still practice very traditional quote unquote Stone Age ways of life where men are typically hunting and women are, are gathering. Does this then mean that men garner more prestige in a society than women? because they are out hunting. Does that, is that a logical conclusion to draw, that hunting is by its very nature a more prestigious activity? What would make it a more prestigious activity outside of gendered or cultural constructs? Yeah? The danger of it? Po- yes, potentially the, the danger that you're exposing yourself to would be certainly one, exam- one, one element. What else might make it a, a more prestigious activity? Uh, like larger outcomes or like more food? Exactly. If, as a group, you are dependent on successful hunting for survival, then the people who are providing you with the means of your survival, it would seem natural that that could and, indeed, probably would accrue greater prestige. And we've seen an example of that, have we not, in this class already? Because you'll recall the amazing example of the arrow exchange protocol that we studied. And the whole purpose of that protocol was to diminish the potential for a good hunter to acquire greater prestige as a result of his superior hunting skills. So that tells us already that there is a potential for the acquisition of prestige through this activity, in that case, being applied asymmetrically inside of hunting groups. So if we could point to these primitive groups, people living in the pre-Neolithic, and say, right, since they got most of their food from hunting, therefore hunting is a prestige activity. Is that in fact the case, do you know? It is not the case, as far as we know, Where do most calories come from? Hunting or gathering? Gathering, Gathering, indeed. Hunting, as it turns out, is a much more idiosyncratic activity that doesn't happen on on a necessarily regular basis. So actually, if women are the gatherers, or women and their little children are the ones doing the gathering, it turns out that in many instances, they are the ones responsible for the majority of calories needed in order to keep a society alive. If we simply looked at it clinically, that is to say outside of our existing gender construct, which which wants us to assign different prestige weights to different kinds of activities, but simply looked at it and say, right, women bring in 60% of a society's calories and men bring in 40%, which then would we say is the more, quote, prestigious, unquote, activity? Mm -hmm. Gathering. It just would seem to make sense because it links to the nature of how a community can survive based on where its calories come from. We might try to further refine that by saying, well, maybe meat has greater caloric value than, say, gathered resources, but it's hard, to, it's hard to make a sustainable argument, I think, out of that, because ultimately a society simply needs to eat. What it's eating, presumably, is a part of its most basic identity. Where does it come from? Who's getting it? Let's go another step. If it turns out that a majority of calories are coming into the group through female gathering, is it men or women who know how to gather? It's obviously women. Therefore, the knowledge inside of the group, the knowledge function that attaches to a group with respect to where it's getting its food from is concentrated with women. Women know the best techniques for how to gather, where to go, what time of year, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's building up a knowledge base around this food supply. So now we can start to see a group dynamic in which different food sources are coming across a gender line as a result of biological sex difference, but now we have separation of knowledge. Men may acquire, as a result of doing it repeatedly, certain traits, understandings, or skills when it comes to hunting, and women are acquiring certain traits, understanding, and skills when it comes to gathering. If the majority of your resources are coming from gathering, then it would seem to place greater weight on the cognitive skill sets that attach to that activity than to the other activity. Yeah? If it's easier and more efficient to gather, why would they hunt? (laughs) Why bring down animals at all? That's a very good question, why would we we hunt, except perhaps opportunistically, right? Like if a deer crosses your lawn, maybe you'll shoot it or something. Well, there's two answers to that. As we've mentioned already in this class, the consumption of animal proteins is metabolically advantageous for us, right? Particularly given our large brains and the metabolic energy that large brains require. So actually eating meat and specifically the consumption of animal proteins is helpful to the nutritional health of human beings. So it seems to be an important part of our diet. And we might say, actually, because it's so important, maybe this attaches to hunting greater prestige value than, say, eating nuts or something like that. However, it actually raises another question, which is when we say hunting, what do we think of? And if, if you close your eyes and I say hunting, you immediately think of like, a group of men covered in hair wearing some sort of loincloth with a spear tracking down some unfortunate like woolly mammoth or something like that, right? That's the image that we have of hunting is groups of men going out and opportunistically trying to track down some animal. And there's no doubt that there was a lot of hunting that must have looked like that. But human beings, armed with our cognitive superiority, we hunt in different ways. So, for instance, we can look at some of the evidence and make inferences about hunting techniques based on what the record is telling us. We have a good idea as to when human populations arrived in North America. There's a big debate about this, actually. Did they cross over the Bering Straits and so on? And it may be that some human beings arrived earlier than we thought they did and so on. But we have a generally good idea, at least, of when human beings in any number start to live in North America because we have a very effective proxy for evidence of human settlement. What do you think that proxy is? What can we point to and say, there must have been human beings who were living here at this time? What do you think it might be? We're not making anything, we're not leaving pottery, we're not building cities, so it's nothing like that. What would be the proxy we could point to to say, ah, a certain sizable number of humans must have been living here? So there's something called the North American megafaunal extinction event, probably not something that rolls off the tongue. I think you could learn so much in this class. Like, you know, like next time you're at dinner, you're trying to impress the, you know, that person you met on Tinder. You're like, well, the megafaunal extinction event of North America is one of the things that I've been particularly fascinated with of late. I guess you probably would get a second date if you said that, anyway. The North American megafaunal extinction event, put another way, all the big animals of North America died off pretty much within about a thousand years or maybe even less. Why do you think they died off? We killed them all. Human beings arrived and it was, it was lights out for all of the large North American mammals. There used to be mastodons, types of elephants, for example, in North America, all killed, slaughtered. There used to be a gigantic sloth that lived in North America, gone. It's a sloth, it can't even run that fast. No chance. There were like sort of these large camel and things, killed. We just went through like a huge bulldozer of destruction around the natural world in North America. And you may recall in our very first lecture, I gave you an example, I believe, there's a tree that survives only in South Carolina that produces a fruit that's about this size and it's contained in an almost indigestible rind. And people are wondering, why did this fruit exist? Like, what's the purpose? This tree is shrunk to a little, little tiny island. It's found nowhere else, except now they plant it. And the answer is, it had developed a co-evolutionary strategy where its seeds would be eaten by gigantic elephants who could crush it up and then they would uh, shit it out and that's how the the tree would, would reproduce. But once human beings came along and killed all the elephants, this tree had no chance, right? It had developed a specific niche strategy, and we intervened, and that was it. Game over for the tree, except in this little tiny part in, North, in South Carolina where it managed to survive. So we know from the megafaunal extinction event that human beings arrived, and we wiped out all of the, of the big animals. What's the advantage of big animals for us? Easy to kill, you're easy to find them, right? They provide lots of meat, so we're gonna go kill them. How did we kill them? Well, if we look at the scale of destruction, one possibility is we went around, Animal by animal, stabbing it with a spear. But there are other ways to hunt, more efficient ways to hunt, which is particularly, for example, animals that herd or come together in groups, drive them off a cliff, or funnel their path into some kind of river or something like this where they drown and then simply go collect the, the bodies. There is a place in Canada, in the west of Canada, in the Rockies called, I think it's called Buffalo Head Smashed In. <laughs> Just right to the point. So what's the name of this place? Buffalo Head Smashed In. Why? Because indigenous populations used to take herds of buffalo and literally run them off cliffs and you'd have a thousand animals that would plunge four or 500 uh, meters or maybe 300 meters to their death. And then they'd go and they would just select some, right? And that would be be their, their supply of meat for a while. That kind of activity, if you think about it, building some kind of a run so you can funnel animals towards their certain doom by sending them off a cliff or into a pit or whatever it might be, actually, that could be done just as well by women and children as by men. So the notion of hunting as a man with a spear, just me and the mastodon, a challenge of masculinity and so on, is probably a very inaccurate description of how human beings using advanced cognition tended to slaughter animals that had no defenses against our ability to kill them. And this is not just in North America, but pretty much wherever you go, you can actually chart human activity by linking it to the... To the populations of megafauna, whether it's in the African savanna or New Zealand, for instance, where we killed off all the flightless birds, et etc. It's, it's always a good proxy for what human beings are doing. So all this to say that this notion of hunting as male, garnering prestige, gathering as female, even if that's true, and because of the way we hunted, it may indeed not be true, that there may well have been strategies we were able to deploy that would have involved all of a community. We have no basis then for saying that there was some kind of a symmetry of prestige that attached to those activities, at least at some kind of basic level of community optimization, since both activities are fundamental and since knowledge about both activities are fundamental to the survival of the the group. So even if you can imagine, as one might, that in a, say, pre-Neolithic society, small bands, 50, 60, 80 people, whatever it might be, that indeed some kind of leadership or coordination authority lies in the hands of, say, the old man or doesn't imply a gendered power dynamic that circumscribes female agency under male agency inside of those those groups. So that's the first point. The second point we might ask is, what's the best logic for optimizing survival in such a context? Survival is optimized at a most basic Darwinian level when fit members of your species reach reproductive age and reproduce themselves. So the goal of any living organism is to have offspring that can then in turn reproduce. At, I mean, it's a pretty reductive way of looking at your life, but that's basically what we're here to do. Have your children, get them to reproductive age, your, your work is done. Now, as you may recall, we've discussed in this class, human beings, human women have the distinct privilege of being the only animal in the entire natural kingdom to suffer immensely when it comes to giving birth to young, right? I don't know if you've ever seen those nature shows, and it's like, a cow gives birth to, a, to a, like a calf, and this like pfft, slithers out, and then the cow's like just munching around, right? This kind of thing, and maybe there's usually typically one or two utterances, right? And then it's done. Whereas, what is childbirth for a human woman or human female? Hours and hours of agony, screaming, right? Developed a whole medical industry to help women deal with the agonies of childbirth. So ladies, just be grateful you're not living in like 100 years ago and basically it was you and a woman and a bucket of water and good luck. And indeed, we might note that female life expectancy has has skyrocketed since our ability to prevent women dying from childbirth has become much more advanced as a result of medical technology. Why is it that human childbirth is is so painful and so horrible? Do you remember? (laughs) Exactly. There's a thinking man right there because we get evolutionary advantage from having macroencephalus phenotypes, meaning large brains. But because we're bipedal, there's a limit to how wide the female birth canal can stretch. So we have to play this out. We try and maximize the size of the brain, but we're constricted by the size of the female birth canal. And the solution that we came up with, you may remember nature has a cheat, which is that half of human infant gestation takes place extra uterine. So that's why our children, compared to the children of all other mammals, are born as helpless as they are. They can't crawl, they can't clutch, they can't hold on to their mothers. They're basically just useless blobs that sit there and cry and fart and puke and all the rest of the stuff that they do until about a year, at which point they can crawl around and start managing a little bit for themselves, which tells you that the average gestation time for a human child, compared to other mammals, is not nine months, but more like 20 months. It's just that half of it takes place out of the womb. Why does half of it take place out of the womb? Because the woman with her narrow birth canal has to eject the infant before it gets too big where she can no longer, can no longer give birth to it. And we've we've, time, we've got that so tight that even despite that evolutionary cheat, it's still a horrendous process to move our children from an intrauterine to an extrauterine gestational phase. So this means that the evolutionary advantage conferred by our larger brains creates this problem for women in childbirth, but it also means that when our children are born, they're entirely dependent on their mother, much more dependent than any other animal in the natural world. So the mother, for the first 10 months, is dealing with this young baby, this baby, this infant, that has no means to survive or really even move except through, except through the mother. So in order then for us to optimize the survival chances of our species at a purely Darwinian level, namely getting our children to be reared to the point where they become reproductively successful, means that a society where the mother has to gather resources solely on her own is going to be suboptimal compared to one where the mother has help. So we have, as a result of this weird evolution that hominids have gone through, ended up creating an environment where child rearing is a shared activity, which is very, very unusual in the mammalian world. Some birds do it but most mammals do not share child rearing. It's usually just the exclusive preserve of the mother. We need help, we need to have others to assist. Who are the people who are likely to help a mother raise her child? The extended family. Extended family, grandmother, so her mother, maybe her sister might help, so people she knows. Who else would be a good person to tap into to help raise the child? Uh, The other children. The other children? I don't know. Wait till you have kids, man. I don't think you're going to want to leave your kids and yeah. <laughs> other kids. You'll probably like, come back and find bodies on the floor. Like, wasn't me. <laughs> other mothers Other mothers would definitely help, yes. So you'll want to be in an environment where other mothers are there. And who else? Who's, who is missing here? The father. The father. <laughs> I like how the ladies in the room, they go to, well, my, my mom, my sister, other wet mo-. The father is nowhere to be found. <laughs> 2023, we're like, don't count on those guys. They could just disappoint you every time. The secret to a happy life, set the expectation bar very, very low. You'll never be unhappy. Yes, indeed. The father, you might imagine, also would be an important, uh, important resource source for a new mother. What's the problem with securing paternal participation in the rearing of the young? We've discussed this already. Remember? During our discussion of hominid evolution, we, we touched on this very briefly. What's the problem that all males have? Who's challenging? Dad, whose child is it? Or we might say persistent paternal uncertainty. Basically, the mother always has maternal certainty. There's 100% maternal certainty. I mean, if you're a woman and you don't have maternal certainty over your own kid, that's just a psychological issue. But physically, there's always maternal certainty. But the paternal certainty, there's always some doubt about that, which is what's interesting in the context then of these primate behaviors. In the context of persistent paternal uncertainty, why would primates have selected through natural selection patterns of female sexual behavior that emphasize not exclusivity and coyness, but instead promiscuity and availability. Why in this context would something like the female orgasm evolve as part of a primate and then subsequently hominid evolutionary selective process? That's still an open question. A lot of people are considering that. But for instance, one of the things you might do, and this is what's observed in primate behavior, is in the context of paternal uncertainty, the traditional story is, that fathers will come in and will kill the infants that are not theirs. So this is a common enough practice among some animals where you see infanticide being practiced. Alpha males will come in and the, other, the existing children all get slaughtered so that uh, he frees up space for his own genetic line and returns women back into the breeding population. So that's one possibility. But that's not the only possibility. There are other possibilities. And one that seems to be deployed in, in primates is persistent paternal uncertainty can go the other way. I'm not sure that the baby's mine, so I will kill it. Or, I'm not sure that the baby's mine, so therefore, I will help take care of it because it might be mine. And the chance that it's mine, it may be an optimal strategy to funnel resources to the mother in the event that the child she's been carrying actually belongs to me. So I know that she's been sexually active with, say, 15 other people in the group. So my odds are not necessarily very high, but since I don't know and there's a possibility, I will actually be a a resource partner. That is a behavior that is observed among some primates where we see male uh, commitment to child rearing based on, it's assumed, an ethology that emphasizes paternal potential, right? So the potentiality of of paternity is sufficient to secure male commitments in the rearing of the young. So that seems to be perfectly possible. And that's the kind of behavior, if you think about it, that can be reinforced culturally. Using advanced brains, using the ability to develop more advanced forms of behavior, that's the kind of behavior that can be reinforced culturally. But there's another thing that we can perhaps imagine helping move that case along, which is the question, as we've seen already discussed in this class, the the big question that faces all these early groups, which is what happens when you move from bilateral pair bonding into intergroup Pair bonding, so when you have partner exchange taking place across different groups, which, as we recall, is good for the purposes of optimization because it creates genetic diversity. If you're in a small group of only 50 people, the offspring are going to be rather genetically limited. It's not impossible, as we discussed the other day, as long as it's not your sister or your first cousin. It's okay. Culturally may not be okay for you, but genetically it's okay. But it's better to have the ability to bring in fresh genetic material from the outside, but then this creates a question. If you have two groups coming together for the purposes of partner exchange, what is the institution you're gonna need to work out? What's the question you have to answer? Who goes with whom? Does the mother cross into the group of the husband or the, the male partner or the other way around? Now, in a world of predominantly male archaeologists practicing predominantly male archaeology using male understandings of the world how do you think people typically answered that question up until fairly recently women go in with the men or men go in with the women women going working. women going in with the men right because in a sense the direction of movement seems to imply some kind of hierarchy or some kind of ranking in terms of importance. So if the woman is less important, it's natural that she'll move in with the man. But first of all, it's not clear that would necessarily be a ranking issue, because remember, ultimately, our social behaviors should be incessantly guided by the desires to generate over long periods of time community optimization. Behaviors that are suboptimal will be weeded out through the process of natural selection. So the behaviors that we see actually should be, although they can be culturally reinforced, should be inevitably tied to some principle of optimization, getting children to reproductive age. So one element is that it doesn't necessarily imply rank, but the other point is to think, what's the logic of moving from a, into the father's group versus into the mother's group, another way of saying that, patrilocal or matrilocal or patriliney versus matriliney. Let's go back. We can partially answer that question or perhaps we can unlock some of the logic behind that question, where is there always parental certainty, with the mother or with the father? A child is born, that child, you're certain about your mother or your father? Right? 100% maternal certainty all the time. So in order for that child to acquire an identity, which makes more sense? That the identity be acquired through the mother's line where there's 100% maternal certainty, or the paternal line where there's always persistent paternal uncertainty? Mother. The mother's, right? Because that identi- the identity inherited through the mother is always, at all times, 100% certain. What do we call a system that, in- that passes identity through the mother's line? Matriliny. And as we've noted in this class, matriliny, identity in- inherited through the mother, typically links to matril- matrilocality. So insofar as parental certainty is an important feature of identity inheritance, it would seem to make sense that actually in pre-Neolithic groupings, and we can't say exclusively this was the case all the time in every place and so on and so forth, but it would seem to make sense that fathers would move into the mother's group because the identity of the offspring is going to be following the maternal line. And if the identity is gonna be following the maternal line, who has the most at stake in ensuring that that child reaches sexual maturity. Recall our Kula ring example, which practiced that very unusual arrangement, patrilocality but matrilineality. Recall that the husband inside of the Kula village collected resources, worked hard, and gave all of his food to who? His sister. and why was that? His line is through her kids, because it's a matrilineal system. That's why that Kula example was so unlikely, because, although in that case they made it work through that weird circular economy, but broadly speaking, if it's a matrilineal system, the people who have most invested in the offspring are going to be the group of the mother to make sure that that line reaches sexual maturity and can reproduce. So matriliney and matrilocality link together. Now just imagine for yourself, because we've argued in this class, that going back 60, 80, 100,000 years ago, that we were physically the same, cognitively the same, in many regards, psychologically the same. You're some guy, and you're now engaged in, there's a partner exchange between your group and some neighboring group, and now you're gonna move in with your wife, your partner in that other group. Who do you know? Who's your support network? Your best friends, Bob and Frank, they're gone. Now it's like your, it's like your worst nightmare. It's your, it's your mother-in-law, right, <laughs> every day. Getting on your case, you don't earn enough money. Address bad, etc. Right? Like, oh. so once you're in that environment, there is a kind of psychological exposure, isn't there? You are reliant on the goodwill of your mother, of the mother's network, of your partner's network, for you to acquire a belonging in the context of that matrilocal institutional logic. Therefore, when it comes time to things like raising your putative child you are going to have a very strong incentive to do so because it's going to simply be an in-group behavior that's consistent with the network that's available to you inside of that group. So it reinforces, my point here being the following, it reinforces things like paternal uptake of offspring even in the context of behaviors like female promiscuity and persistent paternal uncertainty because of the nature of of that scheme. And let's go back and recall my example from Samuel de Champlain. A young, nubile woman presents herself to an outsider for the purposes of exploring what we might imagine sexual curiosity. Why was she not, as Champlain felt she should be, shy and timid about expressing her sexual identity? Was it simply that she was a wanton, morally compromised young woman? Or was it that she lived inside of a matrilocal, matrilineal system where even if that had produced a child as a consequence, she had the confidence that the child would be taken up by the community and supported with the resources it created, which is the more logical explanation. And clearly, it's the latter. So we can see in that, that Samuel de Champlain encounter the inversion of a logic that follows from the institution of matriliney and matrilocality as opposed to patrilineal and patrilocality. So if we then, and we're building out in very broad generalizations, but we might then come to the following very tentative conclusion, that for groups that are living inside of mobile hunting gathering bands, faced with choices about institutions that govern patrilocal versus matrilocal partner uh, exchange, that you could make a very compelling argument why matriliney and matrilocality is actually better for community optimization than the reverse. Because it will presumably, or at least in many cases, and again, depending on environmental, ecological context, perhaps certain uh, variations of culturally learned behavior and so on. But controlling for all of those, we might conclude that a matrilinear matrilocal system serves community interests, or let's say species interests better, than the, than the alternative because it means that children born inside of that system have a greater chance of reaching sexual maturity and thereby being able to reproduce. And if we believe in, if we trust in the mechanisms of Darwinian natural selection and therefore recognize that reaching sexual maturity is what we are programmed, hardwired to do as any species, then we could, uh, we could put those two together and say there is a very strong basis for arguing that prior to the Neolithic, most societies would have as a matter of self-interest organized themselves around matriline and matrilocality. And that then resolves problems of things like persistent paternal uncertainty by relocating the rearing of the young away from a monogamous pairing into a more community kind of environment. And that's precisely the kind of things that hominids armed with advanced cognition, the capacity for self-expression, self-articulation, and rule creating can create for themselves as part of our own evolutionary as part of our own evolutionary journey. Do we have any direct evidence that this is the case? Not really. We know that for example around 50 to 60,000 years ago when some of the first figurines start to get crafted, some of them found for example here in Europe, in France, particularly in Germany, that those early figurines that we find tend to emphasize the female body form. They tend to be women, uh, often with very pronounced sexual features, and we don't have evidence yet of, say, corresponding pre-apic figures, which would perhaps present men in a similar kind of sexual pose. We assume it's sexual only because when we see, for example, pronounced uh, sexual features, we assume that it has something to do with reproduction, but in fact may not have anything to do with reproduction at all, we don't know. All we know is that when we start to craft material goods that enter into the visual record around 50 to 60,000 years ago, they seem to be women. And one of the ways to make that consistent with what we might inferentially conclude is that it might follow a kind of matrilineal or matrilocal logic. If it's the mother's line that matters to your identity, then perhaps it's mother's that we're going to celebrate in our material culture. Does that mean that these were societies run by women? That women had all the power? That these were matriarchies? That is not what that means. Matrilineal and matriarchal power are not necessarily... In fact, they're not connected. It doesn't mean that it's not men who have power inside of those communities, it simply changes the logic around some of the biological conditions surrounding human reproduction. So the alternative to patriarchy is not matriarchy. The alternative to patriarchy is a more diffuse or less asymmetric distribution of power, even where that power might still follow some kind of gendered gendered logic. So with that in place, this raises the question, well, If we were living for a long period of our time under a system that emphasized matrilineal and matrilocality, how have we ended up over the last, say, 10 or 8,000 years, let's call it 10, with patriarchy? Where did patriarchy come from? It's not natural. We can agree with Gerda Lerner. It's historical. It came about as a result of the confluence of certain factors that human societies decided to create this institution that we call patriarchy. We don't create institutions for no reason, right? We come up, usually we create institutions as a form of social technology to solve a problem. What was the problem that patriarchy was designed to solve? It wasn't just to keep the ladies down, although it can certainly feel that way as old men are lecturing you about your sexual identity and what is a good or a bad way to behave. But there must have been some more basic utilitarian logic that explained why patriarchy was a good solution or at least a solution to some kind of a problem that links to something that happened around the Neolithic. So what we should do is let's take a break. Let 's take a 10 minute break, refill our coffees, and we'll come back and we'll rush through patriarchy and civilization. OK, let's, we, we need to let's finish up. We've made an argument at some length that the, that patriarchy can indeed should indeed be historicized, that is to say that it's not some reflection of the natural arrangement of uh, men and women in a society based on biological sex difference, but indeed is something that comes about as a result of the cultural gendering of our societies in which men and women performing roles based on, based on these gender categories, which are themselves essentially cultural constructs. And we've seen that what seems like at first glance just common sense things like, oh, hunting is a more prestige-gathering pursuit, society should be patrilocal, etc., that those, that logic crumbles when we look at it not through the lens of a kind of patriarchal cultural gaze, but instead simply through the lens of a Darwinian logic about how we optimize community success, where that's defined as bringing children to the age of sexual maturity. And we see that there are many possible institutional arrangements, including compellingly the idea of matrilocal and matrilineal, And that would then seem to imply a very different set of social institutions than the one that ultimately we end up producing in in the Neolithic, which is patriarchy. So let's ask ourselves, we haven't really we haven't actually really crossed the Neolithic divide yet in this class, so we'll do so now. Let's remind ourselves what the Neolithic is, broadly, broadly considered. So the Neolithic, the New Stone Age. The Neolithic, in the learner text, she defines it as essentially the rise of these city-states of around five or 6,000 years ago. But we might be a bit more expansive in our definition and say that the Neolithic is essentially the turn towards forms of sedentary agricultural economy. So it's the rise of an agricultural economy that then replaces the mobile hunting-gathering mode of economic organization that we find previously. We have laid to bed, I think, hopefully compellingly, the idea that we adopted agriculture because it represented a superior technology to the ones that we had been using before. We have evidence of groups pursuing mobile hunting-gathering lives who, when given the opportunity to become agricultural producers, actively reject doing so precisely because it requires much more work than their existing mobile hunting-gathering life provides for them. And problems of, for example, climatic variability or ecological anxiety and uncertainty can to some degree be attenuated by low population densities. And since we have further discussed in this class, human beings have long developed in terms of their Uh, Social knowledge, ways of controlling for population, which reflects both an ability to space out birth intervals as well as presumably reflects some underlying ecological knowledge about the carrying capacity of the environment in which you find yourself. So, if you can practice methodically systems to reduce or to keep your population low enough so that it can be more or less well supported by the environment, then ultimately you can lead a balanced life, and that seems to explain going all the way back to the beginning of our class, that problem of the sapient paradox, why it took human beings so long to become human, where becoming human is defined as becoming civilized, showing those signs of civilization, cities, sedentism, writing, agriculture, and so on. So that narrative of human beings waiting to cross over the border into civilization we've already seen as a highly problematic one. So let's go back to that very briefly and consider what it was that propels us to away from one mode of existence into this neolithic mode of existence, if it's not simply a question of superior technology. Well, in this regard, the jury is still out. There's still a lot of work that's being done trying to explain the rise of agriculture There's an enormous amount of voluminous uh, academic literature around this particular topic. However, the consensus, insofar as there is one, seems to be that it was not an endogenous change where human beings practicing one mode of life suddenly woke up and said, oh, there's a better way. We should all become farmers and start growing grain. Instead, it seems very likely that it was an exogenous change, that it was produced by something that happened outside of human societies. And the thing that we can point to, we've already mentioned it briefly in this class, is that about 12,000 years ago, we suddenly see a very significant shift in climate patterns. We move away from the oscillations of the Quaternary glaciation, and instead we move towards the warming and then stabilization of the Holocene period. So the Holocene warming and, and temperature stabilization is coincident with the rise of farming, And it's very suggestive that as the climate stabilizes, it might create better conditions for, over many generations, the gradual development of cultigens, of of crops that are put under cultivation. And similarly, a similar logic that follows from that is the rise of some kind of pastoralism, namely the keeping of herd animals like goats and Uh, sheep, and eventually perhaps cows and so on. Those behaviors reinforce each other because both pastoralist and horticultural behavior to some degree lock you into a much more restricted environment than a traditional hunting-gathering life. And so the principle of mobility, which we have seen is a primary feature of the hunting-gathering way of life, has to be then set aside in exchange for some kind of quasi or eventually permanent sedentism. By the time we get into full-fledged Farmers, agriculturalists, that is to say, people who have the plow and the cow, they have fields that they need to to tend to, and they have herds of animals that they need to to take care of. At that point, we've moved away completely from a mobile logic of existence to a sedentary logic of existence. Here is where I live. This is the part of the the world which I call home, and here I am stuck, and I will plan to live my life in this particular region. So with the advent of climate change and the possibility of new uh, behaviors and new techniques, it seems, as if at least in some parts of the world, and we think broadly that it would have originated in central Anatolia, and which is today Turkey, that with the rise of these cultigens that could be grown reliably year after year providing caloric inputs, uh, supplanted at least for some people uh, the more traditional mobile hunting-gathering way of life. Once you have moved your economic, the economic logic of your society away from a hunting-gathering perspective to an agricultural perspective, lots of other changes start to happen. It produces a whole consequence of of change to how the society operates and the logic that it needs in order to work. At its most basic level, the act of farming is, in terms of production, very different from the act of hunting-gathering. Recall that Marshall Salins underlines how much more effort it is to be a farmer than it is to be a hunter-gatherer, because if you're a hunter-gatherer and there are no resources to be found in your local area, what do you do? You simply get up and you move someplace else. If you're a farmer, you don't have that choice. You need your fields to be productive year in, year out. If for some reason your crops fail, you face potential starvation. So the situation becomes much more precarious in terms of your attachment to the environment because you've lost that principle of mobility. And you'll recall that. Sollins points out that for mobile hunter-gatherers, that what he calls prodigality and that confidence that they have in their ability to extract from their environment the resources they need contrasts with what he calls the anxiety and the deferred strategies of later, of later groups. So once you've moved into an agricultural footing, the whole way that you're thinking about how you feed yourself, how you extract resources is going to change. You need to pay a lot of attention to the, to the growing and harvesting of your crops, to the setting aside of seeds, And you're also gonna start making significant investments in storage technology. You're gonna develop competent deferred return strategies. Save some grain for a rainy day, right? What happens if the crop fails? You're gonna wanna have something in the basement that you can turn to to feed yourself because you never know, will the rains arrive this year? Will the sun be too hot or will it be too cold? So you're in a much more anxious situation and the way to resolve that anxiety is to use our advanced cognition come up with technological responses that help attenuate those anxieties, and the best way is to grow some surplus and put it aside so that it's there when you need it. So we move from an immediate to a deferred return system. If you're in a deferred return system, this reinforces the sedentism that we practice. I have a whole bunch of grain. I'm gonna need a place to put it. A great place to put it is in something that belongs to me that I'm gonna call a house. It doesn't have to belong to you. It doesn't necessarily implicate the idea of ownership or property rights, Pache Russo, because we saw in the case of our Huron, for example, that they moved into a kind of quasi-horticultural footing. They practiced, among other things, deferred returns, but they didn't develop a private property regime. So it's not inevitable that a system like that would move towards private property. But you can see that there is going to be a strong pull between an economic system that's based on your individual labor inputs, the need to then take the product of those labor inputs, and in addition to consuming them directly, also putting some aside for later consumption, that from a regime like that, the idea of something being mine, the idea of property will emerge, potentially in many places, as a matter of course when we further remember that in order to practice these kinds of production inputs efficiently, you don't just need your human labor, but you're gonna want to develop additional tools, things like plows and shovels and all the other impedimenta that might help facilitate agricultural production, that that suite of material possessions is going to have a direct impact on your ability to be a good producer. So once we move into the world of agriculture, the logic of our social systems changes very fundamentally just at the level of how we are seeing ourselves as producers, the amount of time, the types of things we're doing, and our conception of time. Because we're not just thinking about the now, we're also, we have to plan ahead as a matter of survival. But there's another very critical change that takes place, and this explains, at least as best as we can tell, why it is that in relatively short order, agricultural communities come to dominate over their mobile hunter-gatherer neighbors which is that we see very rapid population increase. So recall that, at least as we can tell from the skeletal evidence, that when we cross from the pre-Neolithic into the Neolithic, lives typically become slightly worse off. Life expectancies decline, overall nutritional health declines, but there are a lot more of us. So the, pa- the patterns of population control that we associate with pre-Neolithic behaviors are now displaced by a, what we might call it a population maximizing strategy. Have as many children as you, as you can. And that seems to be supported by uh, the evidence that we have from early agricultural communities. So expanding populations, put another way, population densities increase very significantly in a relatively short order. Why might farmers be motivated to have many more children? What's the advantage of having lots of kids? They can work on the field. Exactly, you have the kids to put them to work. Uh, You're literally growing an asset. You're growing a resource inside the womb, and that resource can have a direct impact on your ability to extract resources from the land that you have under harvest. And if you think about it, little kids' hands are perfect for things like weeding and putting in seeds in the ground, right? So once they're old enough to feed themselves, into the fields you go. So we can imagine a world in which the labor of, say, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, maybe even younger than that, is being harnessed in service to agricultural production, and the more you have, there's obviously gonna be an equilibrium point, but you can grow more labor, and that labor is then gonna enhance the productivity of your, of your fields. So this means that we have a, an, an arrangement where we, we see the potential for the rise of private property. We have people who are living lives that are sedentary. We have deferred strategies, which means we have the rise of storage technology. I set aside some grain, I put it in my basement, it is mine, it belongs to me, it's to support me and my family. And then we have the need for more population. So let's think, what that might do to not the female body, but to the role of female sexuality in the context of this new economic, new economic arrangement. Since we saw that the problem of all animal reproduction is one of paternal uncertainty, that problem, of course, doesn't go away. So we saw that we can resolve the problem of paternal uncertainty through using the logic of things like matrilocality and matriliney, Take putative fathers, put them into environments where the mother's network is the one that's operative. It's the mother's line that matters. And so we can diminish the impact that something like paternal uncertainty might have. But we move into an agricultural footing, actually, the, since the whole economic spectrum is now being reorganized, we have to think what's going to happen to the logic of female sexuality, female sexual reproductive potential, in the context of that larger social, larger social and economic organization. Men moving away from hunting into a role of farming. So recall that in our, in our Huron case, we saw that women took up the horticultural position. But once you get into full-fledged agriculture, men are typically the ones who are working the fields, right? So the male role will now go away from a traditional hunting role into one where they become farmers and or herders, uh, or often both, right? So we have men who are engaging their, who are using their economic resources to grow food by t- harvesting a field. So we see that the logic, the underlying economic logic of a system like that is now located in the specific land that attaches to an agricultural community, that's where your food is coming from, or from the herd of animals that provide you with the, that provide you with the animal protein that you need. So it's changing that kind of traditional mobile hunting-gathering economic logic, gendering activities from a hunting and a gathering perspective. But on top of that, we're seeing then that these farmers, in order for them to make, to to, let's say, to optimize their farming, right, to be be good farmers, they have to start making investments to grow their crops. They have to make an investment in a place to live, uh, a house. They need to make an investment in a place to store the stuff that they're growing. So for the deferred strategy to work, you have to start building containers, you have to have a place to put it. So you're gonna have to have somebody, I don't know, digging a basement or at least a hole in the ground and that's gonna be mine and so on. You're going to have to make investments in terms of the rudimentary plows that you're creating, or whatever it might be, right? The whole uh, impedimenta of a material culture that's necessary for successful farming all now has to be created by the farmer himself. And that means that we've moved from that world of the non material mobile hunting gathering economy to one that emphasizes staying in place, sedentism and the rise of some kind of material culture, the actual manufacture of things. And the manufacture of those things are gonna be important to the production function, which means they're gonna have significant value. The plow or the shovel or whatever it is that I own, this is gonna be important in terms of my ability to harvest my fields. The last thing I should point out, we also have an environment where more labor is good because more labor means you can get more harvest out of your fields by more hands growing, putting more seeds in the ground. Again, that equilibrium point, because more hands is more mouths to feed, so you have to find that equilibrium between what you can grow versus what's being consumed. But it's clear, it's self-evident based on population increase trajectories that we see in this period that population increase served these communities. And it's not simply as a result of food availability, but also the underlying economic logic. So if we go back to our text and this notion that patriarchy emerges as a function of the Neolithic, another way of restating that is, with the rise of agriculturally based economies driven as a result of this accident of climate stabilization, female sexual reproduction moves from being, let's say, a community good or an act of individual female agency to now being placed under the control of her male partner. So if we think about what that means, the logic of patriarchy, The ability of a woman to reproduce under a patriarchal system is limited to simply one man, right? Simply her partner. He exercises monopoly rights over her sexual reproduction. If you exercise monopoly rights over something, what do you call that? Ownership, Ownership, exactly. If you have monopoly rights to something, you own it. It is yours. Ownership is defined by the monopoly rights that it confers to to the owner. So when we move female sexual reproduction into an environment where it is uh, being controlled through the exercise of monopoly rights by a male partner, another way of thinking about that, female sexual agency moves from whatever environment it was in the pre-Neolithic, but let's assume it was some sort of matrilocal, matrilineal, community-based system, and a function of her own agency, now moves into an ownership paradigm where it is subordinate to the agency of the owner, her male partner. Why would that make sense? Well, that would make sense if there's a reason why you get an optimized community through a patrilocal rather than a matrilocal system and why monopoly over sexual reproduction would make sense in that context. And we can look at both of those very quickly. Why do you think when you become farmers, it makes sense for us to follow not a matrilineal but a patrilineal line? What might define a patrilineal logic in that context? And if we follow the argument we've been making so far, it's going to redound to the question of where the economic inputs are coming from. If the men are plowing the fields or herding the animals and are building all the instruments needed, right, all of that kind of stuff, and the women are left with things like food preparation and child nurturing and so on, that means that when you assemble the complex of things that you need to become a successful farmer this piece of land that I harvest using this set of tools and I've got this herd of flocks and they all belong or they come to me as the male, right? As the, a male economic producer. Where is the identity gonna follow, right? Who gets that stuff? My children. Not the children, not, not put into the family of my wife, but to keep it in my family, right? It places an emphasis on ownership, places an emphasis on lineage, and that's gonna mean if the, if the inputs are coming from the male lineage, it's gonna put an emphasis on, on male ownership. So as the person who's making the effort, I'm going to want my children, my line, to be the one that inherits the product of my labor. Is that clear? So this places an emphasis on male lineage. Ownership that's generated by male economic inputs is going to create a, a basis for a male lineage, not a female lineage. I don't want to work hard so that my, my wife's family gets it all. That's not a good, good way of organizing things. And in economics, they have a good term for this. They call it credible commitments. You will not expect credible commitments from a male economic producer if he cannot be confident of benefiting from his own economic function. And the only way he can benefit is if he has confidence that the efforts of that economic function will remain within the male lineage, his lineage. This now makes of considerable importance the question of paternal certainty. Male lineage is problematic because you always have persistent paternal uncertainty. How do I know that my children are actually mine, and because we always have that persistent potential of doubt, you're going to have to enact some kind of an institution to eradicate or at least eliminate, minimize that doubt to the point where it's effectively non-existent. It's not serving as an impediment to securing credible commitments on the part of male producers. What's the best way to ensure paternal certainty? Monopolize female sexual reproduction. If the only person who has access to my partner's reproductive potential is me, and she gives birth to a child, I have a high degree of certainty that that child is mine. And so in order then to uh, optimize or augment to the highest degree possible, paternal certainty in the context of potential female promiscuity is to erect a whole range of cultural practices, the purpose of which is to turn female sexual reproductive agency into a good that can be owned by the male partner. And once you can exercise monopoly rights over it, at that point you optimize the position or you've created the best possible condition for creating paternal certainty. Once I live inside of a paradigm that can secure paternal certainty, at that point you are able to generate credible commitments, and now you generate a system where men will be willing to make the efforts to build houses and build walls and make tools and farm the fields and all the rest of it because the product of their economic labor will be secured inside of the male lineage. This is fundamentally the argument or explains why Lerner and many others who have studied this link together the rise of patriarchy and the rise of private property where private property is being created largely by male economic inputs. So in a male economic input dominated economy that creates private property, patriarchy is going to be a necessary adjunct to that system because the credible commitments needed to create that private property will not be found unless you can resolve the problem of paternal uncertainty and patriarchy is an effective mechanism for doing it. How effective was that? Well, if we follow the logic along, and I'm almost done, This would suggest that a lot of the behaviors that we today, both as men and women, feel almost innately, we would think of as part of our own humanity, are actually or have actually simply been learned over the last six, eight, 10,000 years, take your pick, of patriarchal thinking. So for instance, the idea that there should be shame attached to female sexual promiscuity, a learned behavior not something that's innate necessarily to our own humanity, but something that's culturally reinforced. The idea of females subordinating themselves to male opinion or to male authority, a learned uh, behavior. The idea that there are male skills and female skills, probably a learned behavior, except those which are very clearly linked to some kind of specific biological sex difference. And we can see the ways in which those behaviors were learned. Recall that Samuel de Champlain, seeing his young nubile Huron woman said, We better get the missionaries in here and get these people some religion because look at what happens to our belief systems insofar as we can infer them from the pre-Neolithic and then see them in the post-Neolithic from the world of, say, potential fertility goddesses and mixed pantheons of men and women and largely women informing our cosmological understanding of the world that we inhabit. We run the system of patriarchy of an agricultural economy a few thousand years and what do we see at the end of it? We see things like The Sumerian pantheon, the Egyptian pantheon. By the time we get to Judaic monotheism, covenant religion, what gender is God? There's only one God, and what gender is he? Exactly. It's a male God. And what is that male God very interested in? First couple of books of the Jewish Bible, what is that God very interested in? all kinds of rules that govern sexual behavior by women. They're apparently very important. God took time out of his busy schedule to think about the problem of female sexual agency and had some ideas and wrote them down in a book just for you. Now you imagine you're growing up in a system where there's an entire class, a power structure, a belief structure, a thought structure that's around you that's preaching, this is who you are, this is the sexual identity that you're allowed, this is the right way or the wrong way to behave, all of which is designed to reinforce elements of monopolization of sexual identity inside of a monogamous mating pair. And you run that long enough, and eventually you're going to create people who organically feel that way, who are going to, as it were, absorb the rules of the game, incorporate it psychosocially, and then reproduce it. And in this way, as Lerner points out, women who have been excluded from human history because they've never been allowed to be uh, active actors in human history have, in a way, a kind of passive complicity in that because as a result of living inside of these thought structures, those thought structures become irresistible, and then women see themselves as essentially a function of the logic of patriarchy. So if you were to go back 200, 500, or 1,000, or 1,500 years and compare, say, what women thought of themselves then compared to how they might see themselves today, we would probably be alarmed and a bit dismayed at how little agency they would ascribe to themselves simply as a result of these kinds of ideological uh, and thought structures that that surround us. So you can see that when we start to do things like craft monotheistic religions, a major purpose of which is to set out elaborate rules governing things like property exchange and the right role of the different uh, sexes and right gender behaviors and so on, that this is the kind of stuff that a society that's moved to a different footing that needs new rules is going to create those are the new rules of a new economic system that needs to reinforce behaviors that otherwise will not occur naturally. When left to themselves, women, like men, will reclaim their sexual agency if they feel that they are permitted to do so, that it doesn't go against the rules of the game. And so insofar as women today seem to exercise a certain kind of female shyness or coyness, that's not a reflection of women being, like many other animals, sort of the process of Darwinian selection instead that is a culturally learned behavior and when it's culturally learned we call it gender not sex in other words it's a gendered behavior right and so patriarchy has created this form of gendered gendered identity and has reinforced it for 10,000 years because at the heart of patriarchy or let's say linked to patriarchy is the need to create integrity inside of a property rights system where property is being created increasingly by men, and you can see that's gonna be a self-intensifying process. Once you take women out of the equation, men continue to create the property, and the system then simply becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. At that point, the, pro- the patriarchy has itself created the rules of the game, and as a result of those rules of the game, what do we have? We have cities and cathedrals, and fine art, in other words, all the products of civilization that we think emerging from the property regimes of early agricultural economies and moving forward over the next 10,000 years, premised at the very beginning of that is the ability to secure credible commitments from economic producers built around male lineage where the integrity of male lineage is best protected by turning female sexual reproduction into a commodity that can be exchanged across a market, which is why we see in society after society, things like partner dynamics, that are built around the commodification and market exchange, not of the female body, but of her sexual reproductive potential. And that becomes an irresistible logic over and over and over again when we move inside of this private property dynamic. So think about the perspective, and I'll leave you with this thought. Think about the perspective of civilization. We've tried to problematize that word. We've tried to point out that prior to the Neolithic, uh, we see forms of technology just not in the ways that we're used to thinking about them and so on. But think about the stories that we can tell of civilization. There is one story that involves freeing ourselves from the tyranny of nature, moving into cities, sedentizing, eventually leading to Instagram and McDonald's and all those good things, right? All that kind of good stuff and Raphael and da Vinci. That's a great story. But there's another story, isn't there? For women, to recall Engel's words, civilization was a world historical catastrophe their cognitive potential, their cognitive abilities, disappears inside of a sedentary agricultural patriarchal system and is only in the last 50 years slowly started to re-emerge. There are very, very few, let's say, female voices amongst the pantheons of our uh, beacons of civilization. Few female painters, few female composers, few female authors, and so on. Why? Not because lady brains can't manage to produce great ideas, but because their cognition, their cognitive potential has been systematically discouraged as a result of this system. So if you look at it from that perspective, civilization starts to look very differently. Civilization meant taking the full cognitive potential of our species, which we relied upon in a pre-Neolithic context using the potential cognitive uh, power of everybody in the group, And in order to secure credible commitments from one section of economic producers say, we're gonna take half of the cognitive potential of our society and we are going to subordinate it, make it invisible, make it disappear, take it out of view. How is that good for society? It's like thinking with half your brain. It's like running a race when you only have one leg. It's an insane way of doing things if you think about it from the point of view of community optimization. It makes a lot of sense if you're living inside of a world where the male paternal lineage is the most important logical organizing principle to secure uh, effective economic output. But from the point of view of optimizing the communities in which we live, it's a very foolish way to proceed using only half of the cognitive potential. And think about the potential irony that we face. If I'm being very reductive, and I am, and I'm not really saying this seriously, although maybe I'm, I'm not sure yet. If it is true, that this happens because we became agriculturalists and we became agriculturalists because of climate change and that gave us patriarchy, maybe we can take the existing circumstances of climate change and use it to finally end this particular conventional arrangement. That would be a very satisfying closing of the circle. What climate change giveth, climate change taketh away. And if I were a woman, I would be looking at the last 10,000 years, and I I wouldn't be thinking, men have done such a good job, I'm happy to leave it in their hands for another 10 millennia. I'd be thinking, with results like these, we need a change in leadership. We don't need to practice better forms of male leadership, we need different forms of at least diverse leadership if not female leadership to help some of the problems that the last 10,000 years have created and perhaps climate change will provide us the incentive to do so one can only hope perhaps it's the silver lining and the climate change tempest okay thank you very much I will see you after the break have a drink for me